0: And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the legendary Coot Street Motel Six, it's Gary K. Wolf, Jonathan Stran and very, very, very special guests, Gavin Grant and Kelly Link on the Coot Street Podcast.
1: I, I love th- the way that fades away. You're getting better every
0: week. <laughs> <laughs> it's the I very thought that was falling off the roof.
2: <laughs> Me too. <laughs> oh,
0: well. <I> was <laughs> what falling, it's like being pushed. I'm waiting to be pushed, I tell you. <laughs> And it's all his fault, I had this little thing. I just said, "Yeah, good morning, Gary," and then he did this stuff, and I went oh well i can I can show you just how professional we can be. This is cutting edge um yeah, cutting edge what cutting edge like earlier crad.
2: do it yourself, fan effects
0: <laughs> anyway, welcome to the Kooshi podcast at last. We've been trying to get you guys on here for ages. Don't it you is, like it? Don't you like it's, this? It's lot? very it's it's very no.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very hard to um find find the time to
0: podcast. Yeah,
3: we we like to pretend we're sharp, but usually we're pretty blunt, so you know.
1: No, <laughs> no I
0: felt that. Oh so no, yeah, that's, oh, that's okay. You guys just continue without me, I'll be you
1: know Well, congratulations. <laughs> anyway, Kelly, congratulations on the Shirley Jackson Award nomination, which we will know about in a couple of weeks now, three weeks, I think
2: that is that is true thank you that's that's an honor it, it um i i don't know that i i covet winning it but i i'm very happy to be nominated because you get the little little pebble little black stone aren't they cool you're a nominee cool. yes fantastic
3: i don't think it's a good thing that someone wants to hold that stone
0: what so. no what do you want? And it's... what are you implying there gavin <laughs> well, but it's a, it's a good
2: thing. It's a good thing to be given the black stone. You just you
0: don't want to win. Mm. Uh, this sounds like there's something I didn't know. I mean, I I, I have a is it black? I, think, I guess it's a black stone. I have one of those, and mm. I feel. I mean, I'm proud of my black stone, but I didn't know that it came with some kind of touch of death about it or something.
2: Well, it doesn't. It's if I think you get actually. I, I think if you win, you just get a you get a maybe you don't get a stone at all. Maybe they decided that that would be. Mm. Tasteless.
1: You, you, you get you get something cool. I forgot what it was.
0: Um, well it's, it's but, up
2: there with the, the Tip Tree Award for um, neat
0: neat, prize. neat product. Yeah. Neat prize. So the Shirley Jackson gives you a rock, but I mean I don't know that you can really compare the two because after all, doesn't the tip tree give you like chocolate? It it does. Chocolate and money. Oh. Mm. I didn't know about yeah. the money. That's like even happier.
1: Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a real that's a huge bonus. That's really you
0: know. had Yeah, we had a
1: conversation about this one. The mm-hmm. there, are, there are a handful of awards that actually have money attached to them. The Crawford Award in Florida does, but that's only for brand new writers. I think, doesn't the BSFA Award have. No, it doesn't. Something in the UK has the money. Clark has money. The Clark
0: Award has Clark money. Clark has money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what it does. It goes up every year by a pound, right? <laughs> Something like that, yes. So it's always like 2012, 2013, and whatnot, <laughs> which is kind of cool. And I should like, say you guys must have been insane have been insanely busy we were just talking to one of your authors last weekend we had kids johnson on oh, fantastic! yeah that was great yeah talk in fact live from seattle with truly terrible hotel related audio <laughs> so that she was like, like that um dimes which was really not so good but we're talking about transgressive fiction and all that kind of stuff you guys seem to like going crazy at the press right now publishing like a million billion books what happened
3: we just give off the impression. We're actually doing about
1: four. <laughs> but they're all very, very good. They're so good that it feels like, you know, 500 yeah. well, books. One of the reasons one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you is because the writers you're publishing now are all people that we're trying to get on the podcast anyway. We, we, Kidge, Kidge's book is, is almost out now. Uh, am I right? Yes. It's a July book. Um, I think it's August. August, okay. It's, it's, I think it's August because uh, I think... It is. It is because I review it in the August.
3: By yeah, Worldcon.
0: So how, how did you guys come to be publishing Kidge and how does she come to fit inside what you see Small Beer Press being? Because it's interesting. Small Beer is really interesting. I talk to a lot of people who try to be do small press publishing and they don't really have a clear idea... Of what they want to do, but when I look at what you two have been doing at Small Beer, it seems that as diverse as it is, there's a really distinct sensibility to it. We do books and,
3: we like.
2: And how would you how would you describe that sensibility? It might be useful for us to. Oh, We've uh... got some
3: books coming up in the next year or two that will
0: really surprise you.
2: <laughs> Tell you that. Tell uh, no, I mean,
0: well, I'd say literary, quirky, um, and kind of brilliant. Oh, well, that that doesn't sound all bad. No, 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 nothing, nothing's... I mean, how can I be bad? You're you're publishing Jeff Ryman, who I love. You're publishing Kits Johnson. You're publishing... Uh, you, the, the Angelica Rodisher. Uh, you're going to publish Ursula Le Guin later in the year. Um, is it really just happenstance and what you love, and that's enough, or do you ever think about it? And, and do you think it's important that you do, or more important that you don't think about that kind of thing?
2: You know, I mean... I, there, there are a couple of things that we have missed out on publishing, um, and I, I, you know, I've, a couple of times we've been sent collections where um, the agent is is sending it out broadly, so oh. we, and usually those are those are books that we would very much like to publish, but mm-hmm. we know we really don't have a shot at them. Um, but the the great sure. thing about publishing short story collections is there are not a lot of places that publish them. So exactly, we, 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 you know, lucky for us, not so lucky for the writers.
3: Yeah, we're, we're somewhere between the publisher of First Resort and Last Resort.
0: <laughs> i got to say that you it. look like a publisher of First Choice to me. But if I can just say, how much of both Small Beer and Ladies Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet grow out of as well both of your own writing and your own approach to what you do? Because you're both writers, very good writers, and... Um, And that that has to, you know, I mean, there's a sensibility to that. I mean, it's, from the outside, it seems like it flows through. We
3: both read very widely. um, Mm.
0: But when it comes to publishing,
3: we have often gone towards the stuff that you just don't find enough of, that we just don't find enough of elsewhere. Okay. So books like Kalpa Imperial, the first book by Angelica Goradisha that we published almost 10 years ago now, That came about because we wrote to Ursula Le Guin and asked her if the book had ever been published, uh, if she had ever finished the translation because we'd read part of it in Mm. Starlight, the fantastic Tor anthology that Patrick Nielsen Hayden published. Mm -hmm. And it turned out she'd finished the translation. She did it to work on her Spanish, but no one had ever asked her about it. So we were just lucky. And we've had a few things like that where, um, sometimes things have come to us and sometimes we've gone out to get things
1: I, I've always thought that uh, it's, I think it, in some ways it's a healthy thing that small presses are now doing uh, virtually all the short story collections I was, I mean, there are major writers who uh, five, or, well, 10 or 20 years ago would have had their short story collections published by, by Tor or Random House and that just isn't feasible for those publishers anymore
3: I wonder if they will actually pick them up again now as the publishing model changes, you know, if you do a short-run hardcover with an ebook, that pretty much covers the, That's true. the market for a short story collection. So I wouldn't be too surprised if Mine McHugh's next short story collection would be picked up by
1: HarperCollins or something. Mm. Hmm. Um, I'm going to hold my – well, maybe maybe as HarperCollins begins to realize the ebook market, that could happen. But they haven't well, shifted Collins, twice. We, we tried but to I mean, publish. I see that hmm. – we
3: tried to get the rights in an Australian book, but Harper Collins is doing the worldwide rights
0: now. So yeah. I think
3: they're into it.
2: And that's a collection.
3: That no, was a novel. A
2: novel.
0: <laughs> How much time does small beer take up of your time these days? Is it the, is it the day job?
2: It takes up more of Gavin's time than mine.
0: Yeah,
3: it's my day job.
2: It's Gavin's day job. It's it's my maybe one day a week job. It's my night job too.
1: Yes. <laughs> and other. you also have an absolutely irresistible child, so I can imagine that would take up a lot of my time.
2: <laughs> we do. We we Gavin Gavin's life is sort of child and and press. Yes. Alternating. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's not so bad.
0: No. So I have got to say, when I mean, you're talking about how Harper Collins or the like may well pick up some of these kinds of books, I can't say that I think that that would be a good thing personally. Not just because I'm partisan about the press, but because I feel one thing that's happened with the better independent slash small publishers is they're publishing with more care and attention to the books. Um, I can't imagine, and I mean I don't have a lot of respect for, for what uh, the big New York publishers do, that these would be anything other than marginal titles from them. And a marginal title from a major publisher does get very incidental attention, unfortunately. And I feel like because of the importance of each title in a smaller list, you give it a great deal more care, thought, and development than it would well, go
2: I, I think there's another factor, which is that uh, if you have a book published by a conventional large publishing house, how that book sells reflects on your sales figures in general – Um, and so if you publish a short story collection with someone like Harper Collins, uh, then that, that how many copies you sell is going to have some, that will affect, uh, the, how much you can sell a book for the next time around, or at least it can. And if you publish with a small press, um, it's a side project, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of stepping out of the, the mainstream and those sales figures, nobody expects the book to sell in quite the same way. And so I think traditionally having your short story collections published by the small press was a way to do projects that you as a writer that you liked a great deal, but that you weren't quite sure how they would how they would how they would affect your career in general.
1: Mm. I think one of the things that uh, that fascinates me about this development historically is that there was a time almost a century ago when when New York publishers could act like small presses. I mean, you would have you would have a press like uh, I don't know, Bonnie and Liveright publishing Joyce, or you'd have Alfred A. Knopf publishing T. S. Eliot, and eventually Random House publishing Faulkner. Um, and the more commercialized those became in the post-war eras, the less Capable they were of doing really interesting sort of marginal stuff, and and that marginal literary stuff seems to be merging with what we used to think of as completely genre stuff. Mm-hmm. So that when you get a literary writer, well, Maureen McHugh is a good example, um, who writes, you know, in in a science fiction vein, um, in 1930 her After the Apocalypse could easily have been published by a New York publisher, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but probably probably not today. Right. I don't
3: want to put the big publishers down too much because you know, if a big publisher came along and said Gavin Kelly, do you want to be an imprint of our line? We we'd be thinking about it very seriously. Of It'd course. be nice to play with someone else's larger budget and to try and work within those constraints and we read, we read a lot of books ourselves from larger publishers. Of course. But we enjoy the we enjoy the freedom to be idiosyncratic.
1: I guess what impresses me about uh, about small beer and about some of the other small presses that are in our field is there is a distinct sense of personality about them, which is, I mean, I, it's, it seems to me that what small beer does is identifiably different from what uh, Aqueduct does or from what um, Tachyon does or from what Subterranean does. And, and each you, of these presses has a personality. If you walk in a bookstore um, and they have a,
3: sci-fi table, you can, you know, from 10 yards away, pick a, the small beer book, the techion book, the sub press book, the aqueduct press book. You know, mm-hmm.
0: uh, Absolutely. There's,
3: there's a house style, I think.
0: Yes. So tell me, to, to sort of shift the topic around a little bit, uh, and given that you guys both get go out, you teach Clarion and do other kinds of workshops, given that you spent a number of years editing the best fantasy and horror with Ella Datlow, as well as your experience in – in, um, doing small bre- small beer, how do you think the field is these days from your perspective?
2: Oh boy, hard, hard, really hard to say. You know, I, it feels as if everything is in a period of flux. You know, you, you can say, uh, young adult fantasy is doing very well. Um, you can say publishing in general is in a very turbulent period. Um, you know, you, I keep on reading that, that, uh, Bookstores are doing better than they did mm-hmm. you know a year or two years ago. Um, but again, I think that that everything feels as if it's in flux. Um, everybody seems a little bit more worried than they they were before.
3: And one of the things about now, as compared to five years ago, when we were doing the year's best fantasy and horror, at that point um, there wasn't a writer's name that I kind of didn't have some idea of. But in the last three years, I have spent a lot of time. Uh, looking after and playing with our daughters so mm-hmm. I've you know there's a lot of short fiction writers who have come up whose names I'm only half familiar with and I look at award ballads and don't know names and table of contents and don't know names and that's quite a different experience from the last five or six years
2: actually that's true I was just reading the locust reviews of a couple of the year's best anthologies and thinking with a fair amount of excitement oh, i should go buy
1: all those i don't i don't know a lot of these stories yeah it's, it's kind of oh, a, was great. a nice feeling yeah, nice. yeah that's it's why i mean i depend i depend completely on year's best anthologies and all three of, again they all three have my last review was pointing that out i mean jonathan's is different from Catherine, uh and and david's which is a lot different from Gardner's, which is a lot different but you're talking about two different things there, because one is the state of the publishing industry which is mm. always in crisis and science fiction is yeah. always about to collapse mm. and the other is the state of the fiction which seems really fine lots of new writers doing things we hadn't thought of you must have uh, you must have run you must have met lily you uh, down at icfa yeah because i did and <laughs> she she looks like she's 12. stop it and yet. she's so brilliant
2: well and you know, this this is again sort of a sidestep, but um, one of the most encouraging things that I have been told about fandom in a while is by people who have gone to LeakyCon and the Harry Potter conventions, and that's that these are conventions which are being run by teenage and uh, young women in their twenties, mm-hmm. so that they are they are people with a great deal of enthusiasm for books and for fantasy. Uh, who are organizing events where they can all meet each other.
3: I, so that, I think fantasy is doing fantastically. I think fantasy is just, you know, it's very strong. And I think science fiction is incredibly weak. And I think that the last couple of years I've been having a very slow ongoing conversation with a couple of people about how basically the singularity or or whatever is is science fiction's inability to see past the next 20 years. And to come up with some strong narratives that uh, that are persuasive, you know, people people don't look to science fiction to actually predict the future, but they they want it to have something to do with what they what they're living, what they imagine might come. And I've read, I haven't read a ton of science fiction novels where I've thought, well, you know, that's going to grab people. You know, there's S- S- something set 20,000 years into the future Strikes me as fantasy
2: yep. Not
3: science fiction
2: Although having said that In the last couple of weeks I just bought the book um, Co-written uh, James Corey books yep. I just started mm-hmm. reading the first one And then there's the new book by Kim Stanley Robinson um, So it you know, Suddenly I have a stack of Three very interesting looking Science fiction books
1: Yeah um to to look forward to so see i
0: was gonna continue sorry
1: i was gonna say one of the things that i think is fascinating about uh the stan robbins novel and we've talked to stan about it on the podcast is that it's um it's very it's it's what what some people like neil stevenson have talked about as doable science fiction it deals with engineering things like how do you build a city on mercury um Mm. but it's also fascinating in terms of the way it talks about gender roles Uh, Because it's a future in which people can choose one of about 12 or 13 different gender identifications. Um, And this is this is all part of the background. And it's not 20,000 years in the future. One of the things that fascinates me about that and Al Reynolds' Blue Remembered Earth and a lot of other novels, Paul McCauley's novels, is that they've sort of come back into the solar system. And they're talking about things that might be imaginable in the way that they were imaginable to people reading Heinlein 60 years ago. Mm. Good.
2: Well, I was actually just reading Ursula, uh, you will go to the moon, Mm -hmm. um, which is a picture book from 1959. Yep. And really, it's it's great to read it to her. It's, it's, you will go to the moon, you know, you will get on a rocket ship. Um, and it's great to read it to her. She really enjoys it, but it's a little sad for me to read it to her because I think, well, you probably won't go to the moon.
3: That's quite funny. At the end of the book, the kid who's gone up to the moon base is looking out the moon base window. What's that red star far away? That is Mars. No one's been there. there. But
2: you, will, you may go to Mars. Maybe you, you may will go, go, to go to
0: Mars. See, that, where, it's, inter- yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that, that period, exactly. there was a period in the early 70s, it seemed to me, where there was a feeling that everything was inevitable. Of course yeah. we we're going into space. I mean, I was born in 64, and in 71, when I was in primary school, I was asked to write an article for the uh, school magazine, which I still have somewhere, saying, you know, what will you be when you grow up? And it's like, well, I'm going to be a geologist and live on Mars, of course. Because, now... because that, what else would you do? That, that's what, that was the sort of thing. And then we, fa- you know, sort of we found out about what the universe was actually like, and we've had these two issues, and, and you're right, Gavin, to say that science fiction has been struggling with them, though I think I'm beginning to see people coming to terms with it because people turned aw- writers turned away from aspects of science fiction, I think. But the singularity became its own fantasy universe, basically, where you could kickstart infinite plenty-, plenty and you didn't have to confront yeah. any actual problems. Yeah. And then there was the actual scientific realization that going to these places was going to be incredibly difficult, if not impossible. You know, mm. go- I mean, going to Mars is like going to Nevada, but it wants to kill you all the time. Mm. And, and that's not exactly kind of attractive. Uh, it, it's all very nice when you sort of you, – you, you imagine a John, John Scalzi-type space station filled with a dozen different races. You can mm. talk and jump into a comfortable spaceship and go somewhere where there's glorious cities and all that kind of thing. But that's not what it's actually going to be like. And science fiction has been trying to find ways to retool. And I think you're right to mention James Corey because the Corey, which are the Abraham Frank books, are in this really interesting focus we're getting now of – books written and stories written within our solar system that don't look outside to interstellar travel particularly and to try to find ways that we can populate and exploit and be part of a greater solar system 2312 which you've mentioned is a great example and so are a bunch of things the macaulay quiet war books and everything else um and they're they're a bit older now but the David Marasek books yes. as well yeah Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you balance against that the sort of the slightly darker approach that, say, Paolo Bacigalupi's taking, mm-hmm. particularly with his YA books. Um, but, I mean, that's also something I'm, that I'm seeing happen that makes me feel optimistic about science fiction. I mean, I sit here and I'm optimistic about books because the most successful bookstore around where I live is a well-curated, smart, independent bookstore that grew out of a record store, video store, clothing store, Triumvirate. And all the rest are failing, including their coffee shop, because they're making all their money out of the bookstore and it's packed all the time and makes a fortune. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I will Sorry. just for a second talk about just, – just as a
1: parenthesis, yeah. I'll pull the senior citizen card here. <laughs> uh, because I actually have a reservation to go to the moon. I, I joined the uh, Science Fiction Book Club back when, if you joined the Science Fiction Book Club, they guaranteed that they would put your name in on a card, and that card would be filed away for the first commercial oh, flight. Oh, man. Yeah, I have, wow. and, and, and it was, we all knew it was going to be Pan Am. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and I got... The funny thing is, I've still got the three books, the Groff Conklin anthologies and so forth. But I just, since then, I've had this wonderful fantasy that there's some wizened old guy in the basement somewhere in Schenectady, <laughs> carefully guarding all these moon reservations that we made and back he's still, in he's trying to get Richard Branson on the phone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And you know what he's been doing in the background? He's been raising sea monkeys. Mm.
3: Ah. So, <laughs> Jonathan, I, I, I wonder if sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and you're disconcerted because... You're not sure if you're the geologist on Mars or if you're the guy in Australia, you know, which uh, one are you?
0: Oh, sadly it always feels like I'm the guy in Australia. <laughs>
2: so, I Gary, would you would you go to would you go to the moon? Would you if you could on the first You know, if somebody called you and said we're honoring those those cards now. I
1: I was writing an essay for my college alumni magazine, so I had to look up the actual ad that I had answered in a copy of Fantastic Universe Mm -hmm. sometime in the 1950s. And at the bottom of the ad, it said, you know, by joining the science fiction book club and getting your reservation to the moon, it by no way in no way obligates you to go to the moon. And I mm. thought, the, boy, that's a relief, because I had. I'm, I was thinking, I'm, I'm 10 years old, I'm thinking, sometime when I'm 45 years old, some astronaut is going <laughs> to kidnap me off the street and say, you signed up. Uh, what an awesome story. To answer your question, Kelly, I don't know if I'd be up for it now.
2: Uh, well, yeah, it sounds a little bit like a John Varley trip, you know. <laughs> the, <Yeah>. Suddenly, <laughs> you don't want to go, there you are. <laughs>
0: And you're kind of going, and how do I get
2: back? Yeah. but in
1: 1955, he- nobody figured out that the first person to do this was going to be some, some weird guy in the Arizona desert, or possibly, this, you know, the or possibly Russia. Uh, we figured it was going to be had to be between Pan Am and TWA.
0: Everybody knew that. Hmm. I, I tell you what seems to have dropped out of a lot of what we talk about with the future, and it's something that's in the Stan Robinson book. I think, uh, the romance of it all. You know, back in the 50s, if you, I was watching uh, about eight or ten months ago. I came across this futurist video that had been done to promote what the, what the you know America, particularly, I guess, would be like in 50 or 100 years. It'd be these sort of heated superhighways, so that the, you know, never get snow on them, and they can't leave it off the side of hills, and people are living in cities under the ocean, and all these wonderful, wonderful things, and everything is clean, and everyone's wealthy and happy, and all that kind of thing. It was kind, of, kind of like the culture, but from the p- point of view of George, Jet- uh, George Jetson. Mm.
2: You know, that's that's what I remember from my middle school was um, how we were going to be living underneath the sea, Yeah,
0: mm-hmm.
2: how we were going to be farming under the sea. And at the time, um, the illustrations were very beautiful.
3: We just but I'm not sure that level. it was...
2: I'm not sure that it was... I, I was a little concerned even at the time. <laughs> I thought, this, this sounds like there might be... <laughs>
0: Might be, might be some issues to this. You're so much more sensible than I, I ever was. I mean, <laughs> when, I was, when I was eight years old, I have to tell you, and I, I saw, you know, Underwater Cities, I was going, like, I'm there. I'm absolutely in Underwater Cities, and I'm all for spaceships. And if I I could have jumped on a uh, rocket ship with Hazelstone or someone and ended up on the moon or something, I would have gone mm. in a second because well, it was just know, the most glorious romantic thing to do.
2: We we were at a – um, we were actually in the future today. We went to – a uh, festival in One Tone Over in Florence where they were celebrating July 4th early for some reason. Uh-huh. And one of the things that they ended up doing at this, this sort of festival picnic thing was um, blowing up a bunch of hot air balloons and you could go up in them for uh, $15 and our wow. daughter watched the balloon being blown up and demanded to go on it.
3: Even with the like and, jet fuel rocket yes. you know, <laughs> heating up, the, yeah. the, she was there with her hands on her ears going, I want to go in the balloon.
2: So she went in the balloon it- with Gavin um, and I'm very sure that if she were given the choice of going oh to the moon, she would go in a second.
3: Yeah,
1: she'd be like, see ya be back in the- <laughs> yeah I'll I'll, I'll 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 write you when i get work yeah um,
2: after, after after we left the park she kept on saying to us i need to go up in the balloon again i need to go up in the balloon. we're
3: having difficulty <laughs> persuading her that you know next week <laughs> well,
1: probably in there. I, so I, i'm totally with her on that i mean we've got a hot air balloon here in chicago <laughs> the, the tourist thing on navy pier i don't know if it's here but there was a hot air balloon that you could uh not fifteen dollars like fifty dollars mm. Go up for like a thousand feet in the air on a on a wow. cable and back down again, and it was. Feet. I just wanted to do it, and I wanted to do it if I could figure out a way to shoot the cable. Once I was up, <laughs> totally would have done that.
3: Come on, you're a science fiction reviewer, aren't you? A crank shop?
0: <laughs> well, okay. Here's a, here's
1: a question I have because there's a question, and, and Kelly, we've all three talked about this before. But something happened. I'm talking to well, actually both of you as writers that made you. Begin to think of yourself as science fiction writers, even when what you're writing is not what most readers ostensibly view as science fiction. Is that a fair characterization?
2: Yes. You know, I I grew up reading pretty much everything, but I think maybe part of what it was was that science fiction was the one genre where when you read collections or anthologies, there were lots of... Author notes or notes from the editor um, mm-hmm. or forewords that made it feel as if there was a community there. Um, I'm going to actually go pull an anthology from the book bookshelf, which was very important to me when I was a kid, and I never remember the name. So I'll oh, let really? Gavin answer the question as well.
1: It oh, I want to hear, though. I want to hear what this book is. Shall we try to guess what this book is? It. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what did you read? I mean, Gavin, you were not in the States. You were not uh, growing up in this sort of American cultural environment. That, uh, that uh, yeah, the the no, Kel- no. well, actually. I mean, I remember I read talking
3: science fiction <laughs> as well. Um, I re- I mean, I read everything. I was living in a small place, a small town, so small library, and I lived uh-huh. in a school so small. I had a I had the bookmobile library, the mobile oh. library. Came okay. and yeah. You got to go and get new books for the library every couple of weeks. And then, you know, you have that horrible moment when you realize you've read the mobile library, too. So, mm. But um, the thing I liked about science fiction was that when I read it, I did not know what was going to happen. There, whereas when I read a mystery or a suspense novel or a war novel or a, you know, kitchen sink mimetic novel, I have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen. And, um, you know, it... After a while, that uh, I lost interest in that, and I want I I liked the science fiction thing where I felt it would just open things back up again, open life back up again, and make it more interesting.
1: Now, was a lot of what you were getting American science fiction at that time?
3: Uh, it was both. Um, so there was a lot of you know Kelly really enjoys that I was able to find science fiction just by looking at the Galanz mm-hmm. SF hardcovers, but you know there were also. You know, Golan's published people like Bob Shaw and.
1: I was going to uh, say Bob Shaw, Gorbachev, and, and Clark, and, and Wyndham, uh, and.
3: Yeah, so I, I read all those people as well. Um, and when I first read uh, the Women's Press science fiction stuff, that was, you know, uh, mind boggling stuff as well, because it, it was nothing. The Adventures of Alex, and I mm-hmm. read it when I was pretty young, and I was like what the heck is happening there? (laughs) Go back a couple of years later, try it again. Same with, you know, Philip K. Dick, not things that my 13 year old brain was able to deal with, but you know, I was also getting mass market paperbacks of um, Mm -hmm. David Brin. And Oh, uh, what's Robin
1: Hobbs real name? Megan Lindholm. Yeah. So her, her wizard of, so you're reading both fantasy and science fiction. Oh, yes.
0: And I was too,
2: but there was a, a difference in how science fiction was presented in the sense that you really got a. I felt like there's a lot of stuff that came with the science fiction that told you there was a community of people who all read it and wrote it and who hung out together. And the book that. The anthology that I had, which probably came from the Science Fiction Book Club, was a Frederick Pohl collection, and it is called Yesterday's Tomorrows. Mm hmm. Um, Uh And they are little stars by the stories that I, you know, must have struck me at the time. So the halfling by Lee Brackett, the nine billion names of God, uh, Guinevere for everybody by Jack Williamson,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. um, the pain peddlers by Robert Silverberg, slow Tuesday night by Ari Lafferty.
1: (laughs) I love that story.
2: I do too. I I was actually just thinking about it today. Uh, The moon moth by Jack Vance. Mm -hmm. So, you know this. This and this book had little notes about the stories uh, by 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 Paul, um, uh-huh. and I I think that if you know if if fantasy had I think I I thought of my think of myself as a science fiction writer because of the way it was presented the, also, the way the community was presented
3: the,
1: the nearest I think, thing I think to Terry and Ellen's
2: yes and that came parents. later that came later
1: yeah. it did that's what I was going to say the science fiction community. Um, and I, again, I'm I'm speaking as a really ancient uh, sort of codger here. The science fiction community was defined, as far as I could tell, from the 30s on through the 50s and 60s. And sci- fantasy, by and large, wasn't included in that. And science fiction writers who wrote fantasy-like narratives, like Fritz Leiber or Jack Vance, were given dis- dispensation because they were part of the community. But the, right. the fantasy community, as such, didn't develop until much later.
2: Well, I you know I've never actually identified the reason why I think of myself as a science fiction writer, and I, I think that the this this is this thing that we're talking about is is probably why. And personally,
3: personally I would think of myself that way because I when I was in high school I was kind of shunted towards sciences, so when I was in college I was supposedly in the school of sciences or whatever it was called. So you know I, and I was a dedicated reader of New scientists and things like that. So I really liked oh the exploration of the world, the actual exploration of the world in
1: science, and then the further exploration in the fiction. Well, there was a time when the exploration of the world in somebody like H. Rider Haggard was anthropologically feasible, so it was it was fantasy, which might have been science fiction for all anybody knew about Central Africa in 1888. Mm.
3: Alan for- Murray is showing us it's still true. <laughs>
0: Mm -hmm. Do, Do you think that, to some degree, that's where science fiction seemed to get lost in the 2000s a little bit, where rather than exploring the world, we got caught up in the singularity and kind of got lost on the holodeck having meaningless adventures rather than actually engaging with the world around us the way science fiction at one point theoretically at least used to?
2: Maybe. You know, I think, oh, the holodeck, and the thing about the holodeck is that You know, it seems like it'd be a fun place to hang out, but it's not a not a great place to set stories. No. You know, the much better than the holodeck is is Ray Bradbury,
1: Mm -hmm. you know, with with the lions. Well, the the, the belt, you mean? Um, Yes. Yeah. It was interesting because I was I was emailing somebody about. Uh, Bradbury's *The Vault and, and Arthur C Clarke's uh, the city and the stars or against the fall of night which opens with a virtual reality scene and they were simply done as, as, as essentially throw away science fiction ideas in order to get at the story and yes. I, it seems to me that that's what I mean I'm, if I'm putting words in your mouth stop me immediately and, and beat me over the head but it seems please to me that you're you're you're, you're 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 treating science fiction as an attitude rather than as a genre, in a sense. It's a way of approaching these topics rather than a set of platforms.
2: Yes. Yes. And, you know, because I... I'm,
3: I think Kelly's always ahead. thought of science fiction as a set of platforms.
1: Platform shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I... Yes. Can you guys book that out right now on the air? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, the, the other thing that, about science fiction that was always really attractive. You know, when you thought about, well, what kind of stuff do I want to write was was that idea of the sense of wonder, which is, is specifically how people talk about science fiction.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, last oh, here, here's an example of what I'm talking about. I mean, we were talking with Kidge Johnson, for example, and we were talking about her wonderful story, The Man Who Bridged the Mist. And it became more and more clear that in Kidge's mind, that is a science fiction story. In her mind, she had worked at the biology of this river mm-hmm. of mist. She had worked out the and and yet the story as presented permits a fantasy reading if you want to read it as a fantasy story. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's a science fiction story with permissions, or if you will, a fantasy story with permissions, so that you can read it either way. And I find that fascinating.
2: You know, I think there's there's probably a lot of a lot of fiction that works that way. Maybe it's more common in short stories because you don't have as much space. And
3: you've mm-hmm. talked to Karen Lord a couple of times, and her novel that we published was uh, read as a fantasy novel. But if you ask Karen, it has a
1: background of science, which is mentioned you know, once, I think, in the book. So yeah, Quantum, give... quantum uh, indeterminacy is mentioned fairly late in the novel. And, and as, you, as you know, Karen was a physics major as an undergraduate. Yes. Yeah, so she's, she's
3: like, you know, it's a science fiction novel, but if everybody wants to treat as a treat it as a fantasy, that's fine by me. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, you're probably right, there's a lot of these beasts around. We should just call it Chimera fiction.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I'm curious because I find people who that makes uncomfortable. You know, um, I don't know. I think one thing we may or may not have in common is when I was growing up, I didn't think of myself as a science fiction or a fantasy reader. And not even into my 20s did I sit there and feel like I had to make a choice in my diet. And so when I read stories to that That's a
3: really cool thought. Sorry. Just, mm. you know, the. I, sorry to jump in, but...
0: Yeah, no, I, I think... I, why would you have to make a choice? Well, I got to tell you, I, I come across this when I hear people talking about the field, uh, or what they like to read, how they encounter it. I've had people review my best of the year, complaining because a chunk of the book is a waste of time, because uh. it's not actually science—you know, it's not actually science fiction; it's fantasy, or fantasy—it's not actually science fiction. So there are people who, I mean, I mean, I've met one or two quite unique individuals who have very, who have very, very specific. Um, diets for their reading I remember working in a bookstore once and a lady came in and she wanted to get uh, she wanted books with dragons in them and that was fine but she wanted books hmm. with talking dragons in them and that was fine but she only wanted books with nice talking dragons in them <laughs> oh dear <laughs> and yeah, I'm kind this of, reminds, this there's a franchise to... for somebody
3: it might be easier now yeah
2: this reminds me of a conversation that I had with somebody um, I think at Maybe at Readkenlisher or else at Iqfa, a woman who whose field academic field uh, or her topic of research was um, illustrations in children's books, um, specifically animals who were either doing anthropomorphic things um or who were wearing human clothing. And she mm-hmm. said that it's common to have animals in picture books doing. Human activities. Um, it's somewhat common for them to be wearing human clothes. Um, she said less common for them to be wearing shoes, but she said they almost never wear socks. <laughs> Which is an interesting, you know, distinction. It's not something I've thought about, but yes, people have very specific uh, urges when it yeah. comes to the kinds of, of books that they want to read, and. <laughs> It's been, I, I, I know that there have been times in my life when I wanted very particular kinds of books, um, but you don't want to get stuck there.
3: Yeah, I know that, you know, the best example of this to me is always uh, Gordon Van Gelder and FNSF, mm-hmm. and he always says, you know, everybody will like maybe a third or a half of my magazine, mm-hmm. um, and then some people will just not like it at all, and some people will love it all, you know, the the small set that... Mm-hmm. whose whose tastes are in the same set as his. But mostly, you know, month after month, you will love part of it. And then the rest of it, you'll go, oh, well, you know, not quite for me. And that's, you know, that's because he's editing to a kind of broad church, not to a narrow niche.
2: And the thing that pinpoints here that I'm not a science fiction reader is that when I read FNSF, I'm always looking for the
0: horror stories. Mm. Okay. See, when I read FNSF, I was always reading, reading the articles, but.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, 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 what about? But I'm assuming. I'm assuming Kelly that you don't read Analog at all.
2: No, I don't. But I always, I, I always assumed that Not
1: for years, but we have. I always
2: assumed that, um, you know, if if there was something in Analog that it would probably show up in one of the year's bests.
1: mm Hmm. But what they're doing is satisfying a very. You you're talking about people wanting very particular tastes, and in mm-hmm. my mind, analog represents that segment of the audience, which is a huge segment that mm-hmm. have very particular tastes, and they find it satisfied by that magazine. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's true, but what I'd say as well as as I think about it, you know, is that there's there are people who who really. I mean, I think lots of people have very specific tastes. It's just there's a particular group whose specific taste is not to have a specific taste. If that makes sense so that, well I mean I no it <laughs> I, well no, if, you kind of, if you think about it because I know people who they they want to read engineering fiction I know yeah. people who want to read epic fantasy adventures uh and I know people who deliberately see themselves as reading stuff that sits in the space where uh the man who bridged the mist and pelican bar and spar and all these other stories live and that's their preferred reading niche uh and it's it it's it's like literally becoming a genre, you know. This this mm-hmm. slipstream, chimera fiction, whatever else you want to call it, becomes its own thing. Uh, and those people aren't necessarily any more enamored of engineering fiction or epic fantasy, you know. I do re- remain, though, permanently perplexed at the idea that you need to make a choice. Uh, but I come across it all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, and
2: I, I think that, that, you know, for, for readers, sometimes it goes – the way that it goes is what you really want is fiction by a particular writer. And if you're lucky, then what you want is particular fiction by particular writers, but you there are lots and lots and lots of those writers whose work you love. So, you know i am I am very, very happy to find new books by, I don't know, probably hundreds. They're probably you know, a, a good 200 writers who, when they have a new book come out, I'm very, very happy. Um, I don't know if it would be 200 actually, but I think, you know, it's that same thing as somebody wanting books about nice talking dragons.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's just, I really, really want, uh, you know, a, a new book by, by Joe Hill, a new book by Margo Lanigan, uh, a no, new book by Naomi Novik, a new book by Asa Larson, uh, you know, you can sort of go through, and there are mm-hmm. lots of, so when I go into a bookstore, mm-hmm. I'm not really looking for a particular category. I'm just looking for all of those writers, and then I'm looking for new writers. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: My problem with that is, where do you find time to read them? She
3: reads very quickly.
0: You'd have you to. do.
2: Not not quite fast enough.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm, I don't know about you, but I am literally, I mean, I, I know it's a common complaint for everybody who, well, many people who read, but I'm drowning in books all the time, whether they be digital or physical or whatever else. Mhm yeah, a, we're we're
3: surrounded by to read piles, which yes. you know as they age, it's kind of an embarrassment. It's so, like, but <laughs> you no, know, I really am going to read that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you no, know, there's absolutely no chance that you're ever going to read those unless someone <laughs> breaks your legs. And after a couple of years, you begin to think getting a couple of broken legs would be tempting.
0: <laughs> you know? But isn't there that's also that sort of shame faced moment where you quietly when the rest of the you know everyone else is out of the house, you just quietly shuffle a few books into the main book collection. Uh, and out of the to read pile, and just don't ever mention that you know, you always meant to read such and such by so and so. You know?
3: Yeah, I like I like uh, Goodreads, but one of the shelves that you can add books to is your to be read shelf, and I really try not to put books into there because I know they will just linger, fester, <laughs>
2: yeah, right. Well, i was i was on bed rest for about a month yeah. three three weeks a month five weeks I don't know. uh and it was a useful period because what i did was periodically go grab big stacks of books and sort of put them beside the couch that i was lying on and they were a very particular group of to be read they were books that i was half interested and in, half dubious about okay and so okay. They, i i disposed of probably about 150 books Would during we that keep period. Them? Would we
3: not who knows.
2: You know, I'd read I'd read about 20 pages, look at the ending and then um if they weren't good I'd put them aside. The other so, day we bedrest, were The was useful <laughs> for them.
3: The other day we were down in New York and Kelly and Lev Grossman did a we were in conversation they're launching the paperback see. Lev Grossman's mm-hmm. novel the magician the
2: magician king the magician
3: kings magician king, so, the and part of magician. what' Which is a terrific part book. of what kelly was talking about was um jumping around and and horrifying novel authors of novels by not reading them from page one all the way through to the end but rather bouncing about and enjoying seeing how uh, authors put novels together enjoying the structure of it mm-hmm. and this is misinterpreted by some people to say that kelly link doesn't read novels because they're
1: too long which we do <laughs> well but, uh, it, kelly, you, kelly you and i were on i mean this is not secret yeah. knowledge anymore we were on the world fantasy award committee yes. a couple of years ago and we were talking about how how far do you have to read into a book before you can say no and yes. in my case it was less than 10 pages in most cases in yeah. some oh, cases
2: absolutely. not past not page fair. one and then no. and then you sort of take the temperature if you want all the way through but it doesn't It's not often that it changes, but, you know, even with a really good and I'm curious if if you two do this, because anytime I mention it to a novelist, they're horrified. But I really love, you know, starting at the beginning, reading the end, sort of checking in in around the middle um, and then sort of going back to where
0: I left off and working my way through the book. Do you guys? Never, ever, ever. Not once in my life. I don't do that either. No. I I, I read sequentially from the beginning, and it was only about ten years ago that I ever gave myself permission not to finish a book.
3: Wow. Huh. You have to come across a really bad book, and then that just breaks you, and you realize, okay, I don't need to.
0: Eleanor Arneson's Daughter of the Bear King.
3: So it just didn't didn't work mm. for you.
0: I hated that book so deeply, having liked her other stuff. It's the only mm. book I've ever sat in bed, thrown it across the room into a bin. It, <laughs> it made me so cross. You
2: made that book. the shot. You made the shot.
0: And it, I mean, it was like about a ten-foot yeah. shot as well. It wasn't, an, mm-hmm. and it was like at 11, at eleven o'clock at night. But when it was like no and then suddenly it was like i "I don't have to finish every book
3: i think actually that's lebron james's secret as well every every basket he makes he's (laughs) imagining it's it's the herb book that he
1: and and jonathan's made me feel inadequate this way before but i've never thrown a book across a room i Mm. just at the very least i'm thinking i'm messing up the resale value of it
2: <laughs> yes, too. I don't. I but don't think I've ever thrown a book in the room. No, either. I
1: have. I, I've. I've read some books that I've actually torn
3: up the paperbacks to make sure that no one else will read them. Put them the recycling.
2: Well, we we worked with a,
3: and, and this was before I met Kelly.
2: We worked with a, a good friend um, at at Avenue Victor Hugo, Barb, who used to <laughs> whenever the owner bought John Norman books and priced them and put them out on the shelves, she would take them and sort of methodically tear them into tiny pieces and put them in the trash.
0: <laughs> lest, they, lest they corrupt the young. Ah, yes. Well, I mean, yes, you ask yourself, is, is it enough to simply, you know, sort of close the book and walk away or do you need to remove it from the universe? You know, undo it, break into sometimes. the publishers, presses and
3: destroy the plates. Yeah. Sometimes there's definitely a, a delete that needs to
1: be done. Mm. Although John Norman was somebody, as I recall, I forget his name actually had a doctorate in philosophy or something. and yes, was Who cares? Was, What's was his name? <laughs> well, who cares? Well, th- there's a point I of it. I can't realize, remember his name. I can't remember it either. Somebody will certainly you know, email the podcast and let us know. The books were appalling. The books were absolutely astonishingly. But they're so appalling. I mean, like I, I was mentioning before we went on, I, I watched sci-fi channel movies. You know, God forgive me. I'm watching. Uh, earlier tonight, I was watching uh, Arachnoquake. And awfulness. <laughs> there's, there's an aesthetic of awfulness that you want to understand. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, what, was the, what was the name of the hound
2: that that Cassie was telling us about in the John Norman books? All right, we have a, a friend, Cassie Claire, who's uh, who was told many lies by her father, um, about, and one of them was about she, books, she books. about books. Mm-hmm. Um, she she picked up and read, I think, the first John Norman book, and apparently they got weirder around the third book and about the time that they got weird, she read one and she Mm. went to her father and said, "Um, I'm going to have to write John Norman a letter. These are terrible. He should not be allowed to write these (laughs) books. And her father said to her, John Norman is dead. (laughs) (laughs) And it was not until she told us that story and we said, no, he's not. <laughs> she realize that her father had lied about that.
0: What a bizarre thing to lie about. That's a great story by itself. I don't know what he didn't,
2: he didn't want he didn't want her to write the letter and then send it.
0: <laughs> or to go on and read book four or whatever. <laughs> Let me ask you a completely unrelated question. Have you both read it kind of does relate a little. Have you both read the Stephen Erickson article in the New York Review of Science Fiction about epic fantasy and critics? No.
2: No, when, I have not.
3: When did it come out? Uh
0: last month. The issue
1: Is before it the, the science
2: fiction one? issue?
1: No, the New York Review. New York Review. Oh, right. science fiction. This is David Hartwell's magazine.
0: Yeah, it's available as a PDF from Weightless Books. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Because
0: that's how I got it. I bought my copy from Weightless Books. Oh, awesome. Well done. Yeah, well, I I like electronic copies from magazines. I find it's much preferable for me. But uh, his point, and the point being made by a number of people, is that fantasy criticism, fantasy review, is flawed because it overlooks the mainstream of fantasy, the core business of fantasy. Um, and that you see that in what gets acknowledged through the World Fantasy Awards and other things like it, that it completely Mm. overlooks and ignores epic fantasy, either through blind prejudice or through the excuse that it's just too big to read and keep track of. Mm. So Terry Brooks, Stephen
1: Donaldson, Steve Erickson.
0: Not that I'm any great campaigner, but I remember having a conversation with a few people saying, "I think this is back before either, either in fact, Jordan or Eddings had died. That mm. there was an argument for having Jordan, Eddings, Brooks, and Donaldson as guests of honor at World Fantasy because, mm. because they've made they brought notable, so many people into it. They've made an enormous so, contribution.
3: So, did you read the New York, the New Yorker, the Science Fiction issue? I've read about half of it at the moment. Yeah, I've read the
1: pretty but, much the whole thing.
3: One of the things I most enjoyed in it was Karen Russell's little piece about coming into science, how how I came to science fiction, mm-hmm. and it was the Shannara novels. Yeah, and uh, you know it's just a no hold, no holds barred teenage love of those novels. That mm. uh, it was that's just fantastic, you know, for its honesty as much of mm-hmm. as anything. You know, there's no pretense in. Oh, well, you know, I, I read Vonnegut when I was six, and I quickly moved on to Heinlein and all the <laughs> oh. others before I, you know, became a genius. Just, <laughs> she's like, no, I, I was reading, you know, the ripoff of Lord of the Rings, and that
2: was yeah, my... Yeah, I was my... reading those two. I was reading the Piers Anthony
1: fantasy uh-huh. um, Weiss- novels. And Weiss and Hickman? Hickman?
2: You know, I never read Weiss and Hickman, but I loved the covers. Those covers. Of...
1: They were great covers,
2: yeah. Yeah,
3: I read. I was working in a hotel one summer uh, when I was a student, and I read, I think, less than a dozen of them because that's what the other guy in the place I was staying—that's what he had. So, I read. I read some of them, but they're, they weren't my main love.
0: So, what, one you of the point- that, yeah, yeah.
2: I was yeah. just—I was going to say to Gary's point. I think that's true. Um, you know, I I think the other half of that is that there's a lot of really terrific epic fantasy that doesn't get, um, doesn't get the audiences that, that, that Donaldson mm. and, um, George R. R. Martin um, gets that that's equally good. You know, I, if, if, if a book is, has an enormous audience, I think sometimes it sort of moves out of the awards category. You know, people yeah. don't, I think once a book reaches a certain amount of sales, mm. um, often you stop thinking about it in terms
3: of think well
1: yeah i think you're right i think things move from the science not from science fiction anymore they move from fantasy into the bestseller genre just like i don't know pd james moves from mystery into the bestseller genre sure Um, i have no resentment at all against george martin's success i mean he was a terrific science fiction and horror writer he's been and and the books themselves are pretty good uh
2: yeah, I find them very pleasurable.
1: Who would, who, you know, I, I love the fact that he
3: left Hollywood, went and wrote a book that, you know, was unfilmable to just for the pure joy of it, and exactly. to do something <laughs> he could do himself. And now it's, you know, it's the show that you hear people talking about. It is awesome.
2: Yes. Yeah, although it is rather sad. All the battle scenes that they sort of <laughs> come in at the beginning and the end of. Cause
1: yeah, but that they don't have the budget. Well. I know. Oh, I'm know. not close to being up to date on that series, no, but I'm watching really. it on TV, so. <laughs> and well, way better than most TV, I'll have to say that for it.
0: You yeah. see, I, I fall victim. and I mean, part of me thinks that one of the reasons we, that we don't analyze and value epic fantasy is the fact that it's so long and tech, you know, how you – consider the evolution of epic fantasy when the basic unit of epic fantasy is like a billion pages i kind mm. of understand that because i mean i've, I've read game of thrones love game of thrones mm-hmm. but i haven't read any of the sequels
2: well i think that is an issue and i think that you know certain writers are are penalized for that uh, i think the daniel abraham books were extremely interesting the fantasy series the long um, long price quartet the long price quartet was the long price terrific. quartet um, I I love Naomi Novik's books. Um, I love P.C. Hodgell's novels, uh, which which I have been going end. now for over twenty years. I well, think like
3: the Laurie Mark's books that we're yes. doing. Oh. You know, they they were not coming out fast enough, and they were not the right unit of fantasy for Tor. You know, and we're still waiting for the fourth one. And how would anyone give that fourth book an an award? How is it that that
1: fourth yeah. book is better that than this? It comes the first up book. again and again. Well, how do yes. you? How do you recognize well, there, a, book there
2: really, a book? There really ought to be an award for, you know, completed for, for series. You know, an award that would recognize yeah. a totally series agree. once the entire series is, is but,
0: finished. But, but, but it's you know,
3: practically impossible. Series are never ended. Though, are but but, but well, also, I
0: mean, it's yeah. practically impossible. It really, I mean, I, I understand the thought and I don't disagree with the concept. But think about how do you turn around and say 18 years later, okay, now here, when you're judging this year's. Best, best series award are seven volumes of the Song, a song of Ice and Fire, so that's about eight thousand mm-hmm. pages, and net, we finally finished the Gentleman Bastard sequence by Scott Lynch. So here's mm-hmm. another eleven thousand pages, and you're going. This is what you're going to judge somehow. Yeah, well, I, I think what, maybe it would have to be
2: an occasional you award. You know, yeah. it's an award you don't get out, give every year, but whenever a series of exceptional merit finishes, please don't you start give an award. another
1: award. <laughs> come you know, for and, one and, thing and it
2: would it would maybe uh persuade some people to wrap their stuff up
1: mm. well i mean i think we've had this discussion i mean kelly you've read occasionally well, you read regularly and thank you very much for it for the for the crawford award and there's always this question when you've got a new writer what do you what do you do with the first volume in a trilogy do you wait till the third volume in a trilogy and by the third volume is that person a new writer anymore yeah uh, right i mean the problem in my mind one of the problems in the last um uh Ten or fifteen years that were very much related to this was was Paul Park's series, The Princess uh, of Romania, yeah. and it's a it's a four-volume novel. Yep. 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 Uh, so when do you give it an award? <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, I mean, when we were, when I was on the World Fantasy Jury, we read the third George Martin book, mm-hmm. A Storm of Swords, maybe, and I don't think any of the judges at the time had read the first two. Right. So it was unreadable. I mean, it re- yeah. really just didn't function as a novel at all. Um, yeah. and that, that so, so you I mean whereas say the Stephen Erickson series the Malazan Empire books mm. they're all 10 standalone enormous books but at least standalone so you can judge them individually I mean this is like the Terry Pratchett thing do you judge Discworld as a whole or as a series of individual books
1: right I think Discworld is a different well, yeah, probably. sequence I mean if you look at if you look at let's, let's, let's say Jane Wolf for example the book of the new sound or the book of the long sound that's it in one sense that's a 12 volume novel um mm. and if you come in in the middle of that you can start at every at every quartet you can start a new novel but by and mm. large to get a sense it's like you give you give an award for to proust for for Swann's way or do you give a, an award for you know the the, the end of the um, you could
3: talk to the people that run the gemmel award and ask them you know if they'd be interested You know, if you were half serious about it, I think that they, since they're doing epic fantasy, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh going in, they might be able to hook it into their game somehow.
2: But I I have to say, speaking as a short story writer, that... I really don't feel bad for the people who write epic <laughs> fantasy novels, they're the, the the, the
0: uh, Yeah,
3: that you live off for 10
0: years.
2: <laughs> you know, they're in pretty good shape.
0: And also, the, sort of, their basic unit of iteration in terms of just sheer word length is your entire career at, career output in yes, one book. absolutely. Right. That's, there's a point of that.
1: As long as we're talking about Let's, I I just a question which I haven't asked before because we haven't talked. Kelly, the summer people is that Mm. deliberately elusive to a shirley jackson short story no
2: i don't think so it's not no i think it was probably you know i i love shirley jackson um i have read her stories many many times um i'm sure that it was in the back of my brain when i was writing that story but um you know i i i I don't. I don't know that someone else would have to point out whether or not it's connected. No, there's, no, there's nothing in the
1: story itself that suggests that. I, I I'm, I'm. To be honest, I'm a judge for the Shirley Jackson Awards this year, and mm. first time I saw that story title before I would read it, I thought, that's a big coincidence for the Shirley Jackson Award, isn't it? <laughs> mm. hmm.
2: I, I think I was. I was more just thinking about the idea of fairy and about the idea of the summer country, and uh-huh. and then sort of the. The the tourist phenomenon of, of summer people coming in.
0: Yeah.
2: And and that overlap.
1: Fair enough. Speaking of um the summer country, the minute you said that phrase I thought of Bradbury again. Mm. That's what I was thinking more than Shirley Jackson. It always struck me as somewhat. Well there is bro- some of that, yeah. I mean certainly and, yeah. and we've all been thinking about Bradbury a lot lately. Yeah. And I as I mentioned on an earlier podcast, I drove across just a couple, of, about a month ago, I was driving across that ravine from Dandelion Wine in Waukegan really? going to a K- concert. Yeah, it's it's there, still there. You can you uh, can go and see where the lonely one was hanging out. Uh, it hasn't yeah. changed in almost
0: a hundred years now. Wow.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know that I would be able to go down in there.
0: <laughs> oh. Well, look, we we try and keep the podcast to about an hour, and we're probably around there. It occurred to me before we wind up. Particularly for the both of you, what's the most exciting next sort of thing coming up for the pair of you? What's on for for you individually, for small beer, for for, the rest of the year?
2: Well, tomorrow we go to the Mead and Mutton Festival. Oh, that's good. (laughs) And then in in terms of the press, we actually just got a cover from Kathleen Jennings for a first novel by a writer named Sophia Mm Samantar for her epic Mm -hmm. fantasy novel, A Stranger in Alondria.
3: Which um, Wonderful. does that thing that you're not supposed to do, send spends uh, a good hour of reading and then turns it on its head, okay. and uh, and the book just didn't work if you take that hour away, and I I disagree with authors that say oh no you've got to give a book seventy five pages, you no know, because no one does
0: um, no. But, no one does but this, no you get a chapter or a prologue or something and that's about it yeah
2: you get you get three paragraphs you reckon yeah. it's that was, time? Okay. I think it if often is. I think, well, you know, I think some readers will go farther, but I people think most most readers will go a paragraph or three. People
3: looking in bookstores, yeah. you know, if you're looking, and they first actually page. pick it up and
1: yeah, first Opening page. Opening sentence. Yeah. Well, and like that's well, why? That's why editors. That's 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 the, it's, it's, it's the issue. I mean, last uh, two years ago, we were doing. I, I was doing world fantasy, and, and this year I did Shirley Jackson, and next year I'm doing the Tiptree Awards. And when you've got a pile of 50 books looking at you, you're not going to spend a lot of time oh, with one true. unless it grabs you. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah.
3: I think the, the Sofia Cemetery book is, is probably, is maybe the most exciting thing. You know, and then kind of on a on a different level, we have a, just because we've read it for years, the Ursula Le Guin two-volume selected mm-hmm. stories is kind of unspeakably exciting. You know, oh, it is. We have a, yeah. So.
1: How yeah, do you but, determine, but you're, when you're talking station. about, when you're making a distinction between a first novel by a writer that nobody recognizes and yeah. a definitive collection of Le Guin, how do you determine things like print runs?
3: Uh, well, we send out the information and the book covers to the sales reps. The sales reps go mm-hmm. out to the bookstores. They come back with orders. Um, we try not to be too optimistic above that, and uh, we go mm-hmm. for it, you know. That's my that's the press's major problem
1: is my optimism on print numbers. <laughs> <laughs> One <laughs> of the lessons I long ago learned from Charles Brown about Locust, when Locust had the opportunity to be in, in Barnes and Noble and Borders, and everything. he he refused he did he, he didn't want to do it because he knew what returns meant. Yes. Mm. Yep. No, we
3: know it. We know we worked in a bookstore. We worked in a oh, bookstore. Yeah. Vincent McCaffrey who owns Galileo Magazine. <laughs> who was literally <laughs> driven bankrupt by returns after being given...
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Well, wasn't, that's
0: what wasn't, wasn't that the Midnight Graffiti story as well with Jesse Horse, whatever it was, where he was given the Stephen King story and everybody thought it was the greatest thing in the world that he would get it? And then, um, you know, basically everybody o- ordered the magazine based on the idea that, hey, it has Stephen King stories in it. And the future, mm. all of the later issues, you know, the next few issues, he was printing like seven or 8,000 of them because of pre-orders, yeah. But right. they're almost all getting returned because people are going, Well, you know, we bought the one of the Stephen King story and that was that. Well the moral of the story
2: is have a Stephen King story to <laughs> read.
0: It. Yeah. Why doesn't Which
3: Stephen may King have not start? be impossible
1: now <laughs> I think about
3: them? Actually, you know, if Stephen King um, anchored a magazine, that would be immensely popular, wouldn't it?
0: It would. It would.
3: Instead of doing a new story collection, he could just release them that way.
0: Well, yes, but I think, you know, he sort of. His his patronage extent seems to extend to radio stations for some reason. That's more his, his but, thing.
3: But what he also really enjoys is being the first to do things and the first to, yeah. you know, experiment into yeah. things. I, I think I could pitch him on it.
0: <laughs> Let me yeah. ask you a question. When do Galleys for Stranger in Alondria go out? Which is the uh, they, are,
2: they are They're going out now. They're going out now. Out.
0: Do you want a PDF I'll email it? Sure, do that. That would be great um, because we should get it reviewed in our magazine. Garrett. I think it's sent to Lucas. Um, we, we don't have one yet, we but doing, you know. Are
1: we, do, are, are we finally doing Lucas business on our podcast? That's fine. <laughs> no problem. Shocking. <laughs> Sorry about
0: that. Well, well, well maybe if you that, send it to me, that might if, be if the actual point. I will come. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that may be the actual point. So that means that we, we may wind up there. Thank you both very much for coming on the podcast. We appreciated a great deal. Thanks Thank for you. having you. Um, and yeah, we shall look forward to *A Stranger in the Laundry* and the Le Guin books. And I think you've got one story out this year, Kelly, don't you? In the Ray Bradbury tribute anthology in July. Yep. Which yep. I have, here. Yep. And and Gavin, do you have any any work out this year? No. Okay. Okay. No. Just the movie <laughs> of books that sort of are keeping everybody busy and running small presses and, and being a parent, which seems to take up even more time than we ever think.
2: Absolutely. He has too much work to do work.
0: Playing with the
1: child. Uh, well. I do have to, as a parenthesis, say watching Ursula in the pool that day was an absolute delight. <laughs> <laughs> she, You know, she brings joy. Uh... You should
2: see her in a hot air balloon. <laughs> oh, I want to see her in a hot air balloon. Is she coming to Weedicon? <laughs> She will be,
0: yes. yes. Oh, you. good, good, good. Okay. Well, on that cheery note, thank you very much, both of you, and we'll hopefully talk thank to you, you another time soon. Okay. All right, thanks. Thank you
2: thanks. very much.
0: Bye-bye. And talk to you next right. week, Gary. Bye. Talk to you next week. Bye.
1: Bye.